podcast you're about to hear is true. The names have not been changed to protect the innocent, the guilty, or anyone else. If you're interested in the same type of discussion related to organized crime that you hear in the traditional media, stop listening now. If you're interested in thinking differently or learning something, turn up the volume on your computer, smartphone, or mobile device. This is The Racket Report. Here's Frank Morano. Hello, everyone. I'm Frank Morano. Welcome to another edition of The Racket Report, the show, the podcast, where we try to take you inside the world of organized crime. You know, since we've been doing this podcast, I'm frequently asked, what book, books, movie, movies, documentary, documentaries would you recommend to someone that's interested in learning a little bit about the history of the American Mafia? And there are some good books out there. There's some good movies out there. And there's some good documentaries out there. But for my money, there is no single resource that will tell you everything that you need to know about the American Mafia, except for one. And it may involve a visit. The visit is to Las Vegas, Nevada, and yeah, they have a lot more than just casinos, hotels, and nightlife, and the place is the Mob Museum. I have to tell you, I'm not in the habit of visiting a lot of museums twice, especially out of town. I made a point to visit the Mob Museum twice, and it was one of the best decisions that I've ever made, and believe it or not, there's still a ton of stuff that I haven't really seen. You could spend a whole a whole day there and still not see everything there is to see. So what's the Mob Museum all about? And is it just for mob buffs? Is there anything to be gained if you're a draconian opponent of all things La Cosa Nostra? Well, here to answer some of those questions is Jeff Schumacher. He is the vice president of exhibits and programs of the Mob Museum. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thanks for having me. Jeff, what exactly is the Mob Museum? If this is people's first time hearing about it, what is it? Well, you know, we tell the story of organized crime and law enforcement really from the beginning of, you know, when, you know, ethnic immigration to America and how this, you know, the gangs and the mob evolved out of that all the way to the present day. And we use artifacts and we use video and we use uh, a, a variety of means to help tell that story. And, you know, we, we aim to, you know, be right down the middle. I mean, we're, we're, we're telling you what the mob did. We're also telling you how law enforcement responded to the mob. And it makes for some fascinating reading, fascinating videos. You know, this is storytelling that we're very proud of. I, I want to emphasize that one point that you have made, because a lot of times on this program, some people have accused me of seeking to glamorize or glorify organized crime when, in actuality, I think the more that you hear about it, the more you realize why would anyone ever want to get involved in anything like this? The Mob Museum, from its inception, I know my friend Oscar Goodman told me about this, people tried to pin in on it the label that it was just a glamorization of a bunch of gangsters. That's not the case, though, is it? Not at all. Not at all. We, you know, there's, there are people who come to the museum because they like the subject matter, right? So you can't control, you know, how people respond to what you do. But what you can do is you can tell these stories as, as, as factually as possible. 
and you can make sure that you cover all the different aspects of a story. You don't gloss over things that uh, may look may, make these guys look bad. And we we try very hard not to glorify the mob. We don't want to do that. If anything, you know, we glorify, you know, and we don't glorify anybody. But if we were accused of doing so, it might be undercover agents who have, you know, busted the mob or other individuals who have been very heroic in their efforts to fight organized crime. So it, we, we would tend to lean in that direction if, if someone wanted to accuse us of glorifying somebody. The full name of the museum, by the way, isn't technically the Mob Museum. What is the full name? Well, you know, it's interesting. People say that a lot. It, the name of the museum is the Mob Museum. We have like a subtitle, and the subtitle is the National Museum of Organized Crime and Law Enforcement. So we emphasize the fact that it's about both organized crime and the police. And I think it's so important. And honestly, so many of the books that I've read, they tend to be written from one perspective or another. And they tend to act like there is no other alternative and that the world is completely black and white. The museum, I think, does a great job featuring all points of view and just presenting the facts, letting people draw their own conclusions. And I find that there's something to this museum, whether you're something of an expert in mafiology or whether you're a total newcomer learning about this stuff for the very first time. Is that your experience? Yeah. You know, people come at, come to the museum with different you know levels of knowledge, right? So there are people who have just seen the movies. They've seen the Godfather. They've seen, you know, Goodfellas. They've seen Casino. And so they have a fairly, you know, light, understanding of what really happened. And so what we, we appreciate, the, you know, what we try very hard is to appeal to them to say, here's how it really went down. You know, here's, here are some of the stories that you may not have heard of from the movies, but that they're, they're, they're very factual and they're, they're no less interesting. They're actually very interesting, but they're not, you know, they're not coming out of Hollywood. And then if you're someone who has read a lot of books, you, you really understand this stuff, You've maybe you're even involved in one way or another, whether you're on the side of organized crime or on the side of the law, and you come into the museum, you know, with a degree of knowledge, we think that we are still going to satisfy your desire to learn more because there's so much in here that, you know, you can't possibly know everything. And so we're, we're finding that people come through, oh, I recognize that guy. I know that guy. I know that story. Oh, they come across something they had no, they had no idea about, and they, they tend to appreciate that. What are the really neat things that I think the museum does? And this is something that I haven't had the opportunity to avail myself of yet is you do a lot of great live events, symposiums, talks with authors, experts, organized crime figures, prosecutors, law enforcement officials. Tell us some of the exhibits the museum has hosted in the past. Well, you know, we, we, we pride ourselves on our programming, and we, we bring in speakers from all walks of life. We have had, for example, just a couple of weeks ago, we did a program focused on the 50th anniversary of The Godfather, and, and we invited Johnny Martino out. And Johnny Martino oh, cool. played a relatively small role in the movie, but a very important role. He was Polly Gatto, who betrayed the Don and ended up being killed. You know, they left the gun, they took the cannoli. That was the guy who was shot in the front seat. Right, you won't be seeing uh, so him no more. No. 
but great guy. He came out. He told stories about you know what was going on behind the scenes. Some of the actors he met and spent time with. Some of the you know some of the intrigue that went into the making of that movie. So that's one example of a of a program that we have done in the in the past. And you know some people have passed on since we've done programs. But you know we had Frank Collada. Frank Collada was a Chicago mob guy of some renown who ended up becoming a government witness and helped take down a, a lot of organized crime in, in Chicago, Kansas City, Las Vegas. And we did a Q, I did a Q&A with him on, on stage and, and asked him some very frank questions, and he was very open about his answers. You know, we bring in people like that as well as uh, authors who have written really all the best books uh, about the mob. You know, we've had Sel Robb in the museum. We've had Scott Ditchie in the museum, Scott Bernstein, you know, any of the, the sort of major authors who have written about the mob and really investigated it carefully. We invite them to come speak at the museum as well. Are there any common threads that you've no- noticed in terms of what makes a- an effective mob book or an effective book about mob history? How do folks that are listening to us right now know if a book that they're thinking about picking up maybe because it has a neat looking title or a cool cover that they see in the airport bookstore. How do they, and obviously, actually that's one of the things that I love about the mob museum. There's a wonderful souvenir shop with some great books there, but how do folks in your, in your opinion, pick the books that are going to be really informative from those that are going to be just salacious? Right. Right. I I think a couple of things. One is, and this is going to sound really elementary, but it's very important. A serious book needs to have an index. Right. Mm. So you can look you can look things up and you can trace through the book, you know, who who is being talked about, who is being discussed, what issues are being raised. And and also and even though, you know, it's not fair to expect, you know, all these these mob history books to have footnotes and, you know, be you know, half the book being footnotes. That's not what I'm getting at, but you definitely you want to see that the writer has has used primary sources, right? They they need to have looked at FBI records. They need to have looked at court records. They need to have consulted other books that have, you know, where the writers have done really good work. And they also should do original reporting. If it's on the more recent topic, perhaps they've interviewed a number of people themselves that can help lend credence to the story. The ones you can tell that are not going to have that level of credibility are the ones that are, that don't have these attributes. They're just sort of Everybody, a writer is sitting down and and recounting what he read or that he saw in a documentary or that he saw in a movie Mm. and uh, treating it as if this is how it really is. I think it's important to to try to talk to people who were there, right? Even if they were on the law enforcement side or on on the criminal side, you know, people will provide insights, whether it's through their court testimony or through memoirs or through, you know, interviews. And that's really important. I don't think you want to rely too heavily on, on you know, third, you know, third-hand information. That is great advice. By the way, tell me a little bit about your own transition from being, I know you're an author and a sort of a Vegas historian in your own right. Tell me how you made that transition from writing books yourself to being the vice president of exhibits and, and programs at the Mob Museum. Yeah, it's a, it, I was a journalist for 25 years. I was a newspaper reporter, editor, columnist, 
this I thought was going to be my life. And, you know, almost about 10 years ago, it became clear that, you know, the newspaper business was going to be taking a sharp turn and with the rise of the internet mm. and, and other competition. So I was looking for a way to, to take my skills as a writer, as a, you know, as, as a student of history and find a good place for, for me to go. And, and amazingly, this job appeared, you know, the, at the Mom Museum to come back to my hometown. I had been in Iowa and to come back and, and be a historian and, and be a writer, just not doing it for a daily deadline. And so that's what I've fallen into, really. And it's the best job I've ever had by far. It, you know, I, I get to live within this history every day and create exhibits and, and create content of a variety of kinds that people just seem to love. And it's not just because I'm you know, good at it. It's just because the subject matter is so strong mm. and people, you know, come through the door every day. And, and my, you know, they're a testament to the fact that this is material people want to know more about, you know, and it's enduring. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tell me a little bit about the history of the building where the Mob Museum is housed. That's pretty interesting. Absolutely. The, you know, the, the Mob Museum is housed in a historic building. Now, Las Vegas is not as old a city as most around the country, so it's an old building by our standards. It opened in 1933. It's the first federal courthouse and post office in Las Vegas. And it's just a beautiful building, very historic-looking you know, classical style building. And when in, in about the year 2000, the federal government didn't need the building anymore. By that time, Las Vegas had been growing by leaps and bounds. They built a new federal courthouse. They've built a third one since then. But at the time, they built another one. And, and the post, there were post offices all over the valley. They didn't need this one anymore. And they decided they were going to get rid of it. And the city of Las Vegas, which was led at the time by Mayor Oscar Goodman, saw an opportunity. They said, hey, we want that building if you don't want it. And uh, the feds gave it to the city for a dollar. There were two conditions. One, that it had to be historically preserved. You couldn't, you know, put a new facade on mm-hmm. it. It needed to look like it did. And second of all, it needed to be used for some kind of cultural use. It couldn't be turned into apartments or a call center or something. It needed to be, you know, some kind of uh, museum or art gallery or, you know, performing arts center or something. So the city started thinking about this, and Mayor Goodman chimed in and said, you know what we need to do? We need to turn this into a, a mob museum, a, a museum focused on the, the sort of the roots of Las Vegas originally. And eventually that evolved into a, national, a museum that focuses on the story nationally and that also gives equal billing to law enforcement. And, you know, the rest is history. We've been open 10 years, and we celebrated our 10th anniversary in February. And, you know, we're moving forward. We're now looking at possible expansion. We had some space around the building where we could we could add new buildings. And, you know, we're real excited about the future. Well, that's great. And I think you 
certainly should be. There's a ton of great exhibits there. There's so much that the museum has to offer. One of the things that I experienced for the first time when I was there about a year ago was sort of a police training simulation, a similar type of training that police go through and you actually fire a, a, a real gun, not with live ammunition, but the same type of gun that police use. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, we at the time we developed that interactive feature, which was about 2017, there were there had been a lot of police shootings around the, the country and people, you know, obviously take sides on these things and they look at video and they, and, you know, on TV and then they, they read about these things and, and there's a great deal of controversy over, you know, which side is right. Did the police do the right thing? Did they not? And we decided, you know what, let's go, let's create, first of all, an exhibit that talks about this subject matter in the most subjective way possible. Let's, you know, right down the middle, we're going to tell you about the law and the policies and the practices and the challenges that police face. And we're going to do that. And then we're going to accompany that with a firearms training simulator that's very much like the training that police officers go through. And there are two digital experiences, first of all. So you use a gun, as you mentioned, it has a laser on it. And, you know, you have to make decisions, shoot, don't shoot decisions based on what's going on on the video screen. So there's two of those. And then this is where I think we've distinguished ourselves from other places that have this kind of technology is in the third space, then you actually encounter a live person. Mm. It's a staff, a staff member very trained in this area who you have to encounter. And you want to, of course, not shoot this person. You want to figure out how you can, you can do that, how you can calm everybody down and, and prevent a problem. And you have to do that with your voice, you know, with your actions, with your direction. And people are really humbled when they come out of this experience. They're like, wow, I, it, this is a little tougher than I thought it was. You know, you have to make these decisions so quickly. And you also have to be, as a police officer, I mean, you have to be, look, your eyes and ears have to be going at all times to understand what's going on in front of you. So you, first of all, so you, you protect people. And second of all, so you don't get yourself hurt. And, you know, it's a it's a it's an interesting experience. It, it, it really um, is. And one of the things that uh, I, it gave me an even greater appreciation for, and I, I thought I understood this even before, but it's different experiencing it, is how these police officers need to make a split second decision that could impact someone's life or death and their own life or death. And it really is uh, my sister-in-law and, and wife, they both participated in it with me. They talked about how their hearts were racing going through this. Mm -hmm. It is very anxiety inducing at times. And exactly. And, you know, there are people who most of the folks who go through that experience, we found handle it pretty well, you know, they, but they love, they, all they want to do afterward is talk about it, mm. debate. Did I do the right thing? Did I do the wrong thing? How could I have done it differently? You know, it's just, it really generates discussion and you can't ask for much more from a museum exhibit. One of the other neat exhibits that's quite educational is an exhibit on forensics where you learn about mm -hmm. how an autopsy is done and different things that uh, go into the forensic science of criminology. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, we call it the crime lab. And, you know, it's about a 30-minute experience. Guests will come in in a small group, maybe six, eight, nine people at one time. 
And there are five different stations inside the crime lab where, as you mentioned, you can, you know, examine essentially these are mostly digital experiences. And you can you can examine bodies to determine cause of death. That's what a coroner does. You can go and, and, and learn about how DNA is analyzed. You can get can examine fingerprints and then you get to, you know, kind of compare your fingerprint with different people mobsters who you might have a match with, kind of fun. And then ballistics testing, which shows how a bullet fired from a gun can be matched with, you know, a a bullet or a casing found at a crime scene. So, and then finally, crime scene investigation and how that works. And so really over the course of 30 minutes, you get a, just a great exposure to the, you know, the length and breadth of forensics. And one thing you really take away from that experience is that Things don't happen as quickly as they do on the TV show. Sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it definitely takes more time and, and effort before they can figure out who killed somebody. Let's say somebody's listening to us and they happen to be in Las Vegas now for a bachelor party or they're just uh, in town for a convention or a conference of some sort. And they only have uh, maybe a half hour, 45 minutes to spend in downtown Las Vegas and they want to pop in to the Mob Museum what is the must-visit exhibit or exhibits that you'd suggest if people have an hour or less there that they absolutely must see? I would mention three things very quickly. One, on the third floor, we have probably our premier artifact, which are the bricks from the wall against which the men were lined up in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Mm. Everybody's heard of that. So those are the uh, real, in- real bricks? Those are the real bricks from the wall of the building in which they were located when that shooting occurred in 1929. So we also have the ballistic evidence from the crime scene of that, which is another amazing piece. And they're, they're kind of go together. And then on the second floor, you really have to see our courtroom, which is the original courtroom of the museum, of the building. And in there, we, we talk about the Kefauver hearings. And Kefauver hearings were held in 1950 and 51 across the country, and they were investigating organized crime across America. One of those hearings was held in Las Vegas, and it was held in our building. So we, that's a, definitely a historic marker for our, you know, for our building. And then the third thing I would mention is our speakeasy, which is you know, not only educational, but also a great deal of fun. It's a, it's a speakeasy exhibit in the basement. But it also has a working bar, so you can order all kinds of cocktails, and then you can learn more about the mob and during Prohibition. So those would be the three things I would know. I know I would hit if I had about forty-five minutes. How long, if you really wanted to see everything, all the exhibits, and get a thorough soaking in of everything the Mob Museum has to offer, realistically and honestly, how long do you think that would take? Well, I think. Realistically, people can get tired after a while, so it's understandable. But I would say you really need three hours. And if you're coming to Las Vegas and you're planning for this, I would definitely set aside that much time because it won't you won't you won't be disappointed. If you only schedule an hour, you're going to want to come back. You know, and that's okay. We want you to come back. But if you came for three hours, you thoroughly enjoy it. On your next trip, you may want to come back and look at even more. No, and that was that was my experience. And the fact that there was a few years between visits, uh, there was so much more to see from when I had been there. You mentioned the courtroom where the Kefauver, th- this courthouse, and the courtroom where the Kefauver hearings took place. That is another really neat 
I guess I'll call it pseudo-interactive exhibit. If people don't remember the the Kefauver hearings, briefly, would you explain, put on your historian's cap for a second, explain what the Kefauver hearings were and what the exhibit is that features and showcases the Kefauver hearings in this building? Sure. So, so the Kefauver hearings are named for Estes Kefauver, who was a senator from Tennessee, and he was an up-and-comer. He, he really wanted to be president of the United States, eventually. And so he was looking for a way to make a name for himself. And he saw in, in the news in 1948-49 that there were some very high-profile organized crime stories that bubbled to the surface in the newspapers. And this was something that was concerning to people and enough that he said, you know what, we need to investigate this. The U.S. Senate needs to investigate this. And, and establish what exactly is going on. And one of the things that the Kefauver hearings really focused on was political corruption by the mob. And they revealed that this was actually pretty widespread across the country. So Kefauver assembled this committee, and then they started holding hearings. And they held hearings in New York, and they held hearings in Philadelphia, and Chicago, and Los Angeles, and, and Las Vegas, and other places, 14 different cities. And they did this over a course of about a year and a half. And, re- and then they issued reports. And these reports really revealed for the first time to a lot of people what the, what the mob was really doing. And they also, some of their hearings, the ones in New York, famously, were, were broadcast live on television. And in 1951, there were not a lot of things on television. Right. It was still a very early time in that, in that medium. But this was one of the first things that was held live, and people were riveted by the testimony, especially a man named Frank Costello, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of. And Costello uh, testified before the Kefauver Committee, and ultimately he was so upset by the, the line of questioning that he walked out. And when he walked out, he was issued a contempt of court order and ultimately served time in, in jail mm-hmm. for doing that. But Costello thought he had it all figured out and that he was going to be real smooth on on the stand, but it didn't really work out that way for him. So one of those hearings was held in our in our courtroom, and what we've done is in the very same through. building. I just want to re- yeah. reiterate, in the very same building that now houses the museum, one of these yeah. Kefauver mob corruption investigation hearings actually took place there. That's correct, and November fifteenth, nineteen fifty. And Keith Oliver was here, and, and the, you know, the other folks who were in the committee were here, and they quizzed a number of people in Las Vegas about the mob's infiltration of, of, of Las Vegas, which was still very early in its in genesis at that point. But we've put together about a 10-minute video that is very interactive. There's, there's lights. There's three different video screens where things play, and we tell the story in a dramatic way about the Keith Oliver hearings. And it's very entertaining, and, and it happens, you know, every 10 minutes on that, you know, every 10 minutes, this, it starts again, and people get to sit in the courtroom and watch it and experience it. Tell me a little bit, if you would, about Las Vegas and its history with respect to the or, or organized crime community and the mafia. We've seen movies like Bugsy, where it, it acts like the mob actually played a founding role in modern-day Las Vegas. We've seen other films like Casino, which certainly details a lot of mob influence. What's real? What's just artistic license? 
What role did the mob play in Las Vegas's history? Right. I, I think the first thing I always I always emphasize when I talk about the mob in Las Vegas is that the mob did not invent Las Vegas. <laughs> Contrary to the the movie Bugsy, you know, Bugsy didn't just walk into the desert and say, oh, this is the place. Las Vegas was started as a railroad town. Then uh, Hoover Dam was, uh, construction started, and that generated a lot of traffic here. There was a, it was a whole community going on for 40 years before the mob took notice. Now, in the 1940s, however, as Las Vegas really started growing, the mob took a great deal of interest in it, partly because they were getting pressured uh, to shut down their gambling operations around the country, and they could operate legally in Las Vegas so and in Reno. And so they started coming here, from first from California, Southern California, in the, you know, the early 40s. And then in 1945, you, you have the arrival of what I would characterize as, the, as the, the traditional mob coming in. That would be Meyer Lansky, and that would be Bugsy Siegel and that crew. And they actually bought the El Cortez Hotel, which is downtown. They held it for about a year, and then they used the proceeds from selling that in part to help build the Flamingo Hotel on the Las Vegas Strip, and what became the Las Vegas Strip, I should say. At that point, it was just a highway. So in the late 40s and then definitely into the 50s and 60s, the mob had a huge role in the casino business in Las Vegas, and the main uh, attraction for them was skimming. And skimming is defined very simply as taking money off the top before taxes, before anybody records the dollar, they take, you know, 10 cents or, you know, mm-hmm. 20 cents. And they send that money, usually almost always cash. They would send that back to New York or Chicago or Miami or Kansas City or wherever the mob, you know, the, the mob was from. And then the rest of the money, you know, would, would be legal and it would be handled in the normal way. And this was such a huge racket for the mob. It was so much more money than they could make from, you know, extorting small businesses or loan sharking or bookmaking. There was, there was just so much more money involved that it became a, a, a priority for some of these mob groups from Cleveland and Detroit and Chicago and New York. And, you know, it, it, they were allowed. I, would, I shouldn't say they were allowed. They operated pretty freely uh, up until you started seeing the federal agents and then the state gaming control board here take a much more aggressive stance in the 70s. And that's just, that's depicted, of course, in the movie Casino. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating to listen to that history. You know, it's funny, when you talk about certain historical museums, there's there's history that is gone. Right? For instance, uh, the if there was a Civil War museum, there are no mm-hmm. Civil War veterans or their children still walking around anywhere. There's really not much to add, I would think, to a Civil War museum. Uh, what the primary sources are established, then you have other things that are ever evolving, that are uh, modern day history. Now, when it, when it's something like the Mob Museum, something which might have seen its heyday 30, 40, 50 years ago, but does still exist in some form, how much of what the museum is doing is historical and then how much is influenced or affected by current events? That's a great question. So we obviously the history is our bread and butter, right? People are fascinated by you know, the gangsters with uh, the hats and the Tommy guns and that whole era. 
and, you know, the smart guys like Meyer Lansky who got it all figured out. But we also dedicate a lot of time to what is happening now or what's been happening really in the 21st century. And so we, we delve into the drug cartels from Mexico and Colombia. We look at cybercrime. We look at wildlife trafficking. We look at gun trafficking. We look at all the different ways that organized crime continues to be uh, a factor, not only in, in the United States, but all over the world. And it may not be as sort of culturally fascinating as, you know, John Gotti or Hal Capone or somebody like that, but it is important. And what we our job is to make that as interesting as we can. And, and that's a challenge that we've taken on. And we have, for example, in the first floor of the museum, a touch wall, the big touch wall, it's called Global Networks. And through that touch wall, you can learn about all these different rackets, all these different organized crime groups around the world that are currently operating. So the Japanese Yakuza, right, or, the, you know, the, the Russian organized crime, whatever it happens to be, we touch on it on this, in this wall so that people can learn about. And, and in some ways, you know, become familiar with these things so you don't become victimized by it, whether it's cybercrime or counterfeiting or whatever. No, it's uh, it's really neat. It's uh, one of the most incredible museums that I've uh, that I've ever been to. Anything exciting on the horizon in the way of exhibits or future additions to the museum that you want to mention or promote or whet the audience's appetite with? Yeah, you know, we we have uh, I think a very interesting exhibit space now that focuses on the mob and pop culture, so movies and television mm. shows. We often really delve into fact versus fiction. So what in you know casino was real versus what was fictionalized, as an example. But we're going to be rethinking that entire space and expanding that space because there is such an interest in the movies and in television shows, whether it's Sopranos or Breaking Bad or whatever the show is. And, um, and, and what we want to do is figure out how to make those, you know, we'll obviously bring in artifacts from, you know, screen-worn attire and all kinds of things that, uh, props and things that come from these shows. But Ultimately, we want to look at what the underlying story is and how that relates to real life. So that's a whole space that we're rethinking right now and should be, you know, maybe six months, that'll be ready to go. If people don't have any forthcoming trip to Las Vegas planned, is there anything online, for instance, that might be useful to them, maybe a virtual tour of the museum or something like that? Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, we dedicate a lot of time and resource to building up our online presence. And so the two things I would mention, one is we do in fact have a virtual tour that you can take. If you go to our website or to our YouTube channel, you can watch this, uh, vir- you know, experience this virtual tour that we put together during the pandemic when, that, that, when many fewer people could come. Uh, so that's the one thing. The other thing, and I think even more time consuming for you if you get, you get into it, is we have recordings of a number of our programs. Mm. So, you know, we can experience exactly what happened in that courtroom back in 2019 or 2020 or 20 or last week. And there are dozens of programs that you can watch on our YouTube channel and on our website. So I, I, there are a lot of ways to learn more about, more about the mob, and, and this is definitely a good one. Well, it's an incredible museum. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it. Next time I'm in Las Vegas, I'm going to make sure to visit it again. Hopefully I'll get to meet you in person, Jeff. 
Absolutely. Let's plan on it. If you are interested in the Mob Museum, do check out the website. There's a ton of information on there. And honestly, if you ever get the chance to visit, you will not be disappointed. I know things like this are generally overhyped. I know things like this are a little too gimmicky sometimes. I know things like this usually aren't educational for people that know about the subject matter. I have to tell you, this is an exception to all of those. Uh, Check it out at themobmuseum.org. That's themobmuseum.org. We will be back with another edition of the Racket Report this time next week. And until the next time, we if you like this podcast, please subscribe to it, share it with a friend. Just search The Racket Report if someone sent it to you. And if you are interested in any of the subject matter and you want to stay in touch, if you have questions, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until the next time we meet in cyberspace, I'll see you on the radio.